0: As I stand here ready to talk about compassion, the next topic in our series on the life of David this summer, I know that I often fail at compassion. Now, that's especially true when I know that the Bible also ties two words very, very closely to the word compassion, and those words are mercy and loving kindness. So, as we get started, I'd like for you to just take a breath, Settle in quietly and consider the answer to the following question. Are you a compassionate person? I've already mentioned that I was at the General Assembly meeting in Pittsburgh last week. During that time, I was there really representing our session as they wanted somebody on the ground to kind of be able to assess in a different way, not just the facts about the assembly and its decisions, but also some of those nuances that can only be picked up firsthand. And we're looking at that in regard to our continuing relationship with the PCUSA and decisions related to that. But looking back, um, and again, I will have a lot more to say about that next Sunday night, seven o'clock in the chapel. But looking back, I can also look at that week as a, an opportunity to assess how compassionate I really am. For instance, at my gate in Cleveland, getting ready to get on the second leg of my flight to Pittsburgh, I was aware that there was a screaming baby all of a sudden a few rows back in the gate. Now, my first thought was a gentle, oh, that's too bad. My second thought was a lot more sharp. That baby better not be sitting next to me in the plane. From the airport to downtown on that drive, there were eight of us who had gotten on this particular shuttle, and the two women in front of me were constantly in conversation with each other over all kinds of different matters. And the woman behind me took a call about one minute into that drive and talked, as we often do on our cell phones, as if none of the rest of us were present, covering topics and saying things that were really not appropriate for the general public. And I sat there and I thought, can these people not be more aware? Every time we stopped and let someone out at another hotel, the shuttle driver, letting people out the side and getting luggage out the back, once everything was clear, slammed each door. (laughs) I sat there and I thought, oh my gosh, I wonder if she can close it any harder. And then after I checked into my hotel, I asked the desk clerks where to get a truly Pittsburgh kind of sandwich for a late afternoon meal as I went headed down the street to go to the assembly meeting. And they directed me to a restaurant that was out on Market Square, this big cleared area, a whole block square in Pittsburgh. Got my sandwich, went outside, sat at a table there and began to eat. And then I noticed as I was eating that there were lots of other people seated at tables around me, and not one of them had food, and all of them had skin color that was different than mine. And I sat there, and I grew uncomfortable, and then I thought, can't these people get up and go somewhere else so I can eat without feeling uncomfortable? Now, I can assure you that during all of these events, I smiled at people who were safety agents at the airport, who were there at the ticketing counter, I smiled at my shuttle driver, I helped, I was uh, interacted with desk clerks and staffers and the server at the restaurant. I was the picture of grace and friendliness. But in a space of just two hours, notice I have not even gotten to the first meeting of the assembly, my level of compassion had dipped dangerously low on at least several occasions. After all, A young child and its mom were in need. People were just connecting with others that they valued in valuable conversations. The shuttle driver needed to make sure the doors were secure, and people sitting around me on their turf were simply escaping the heat of the unbearable summer of Pittsburgh. So I proved myself to be, in my heart, a rather pitiful follower of Jesus. Author Dallas Willard describes following Jesus as the way of rest, the way of the easy yoke, the light burden, and the good tree bearing good fruit. This life is not primarily about how we act, he writes, but who we are. And I know that in my heart, I am often not a very compassionate person. So how do you measure up? It's my belief that every one of us is a little bit out of sync on the compassion scale, maybe even a lot. Are you able to acknowledge a need to be more compassionate? Let's turn to our text for the morning and examine the life of David Please turn with me in your Bibles or the Bibles we provide to 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Now, I'm going to start reading at verse 1 in just a moment, but first let me set the stage just a little bit. David is now king, and he is firmly established in his reign. It's a totally secure reign. Everything now is good. God has drawn him from the youngest of shepherd boys into a relationship and through many trials and tribulations into a place where he is now ruler over the whole nation of Israel. Uh, and as he is positioned so well over that long period of time, he comes to this particular point in his life. Let's find out what happens next. Remember, this is God holy's, God's holy Word. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table." Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant, that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. "'You and your sons and your servants "'are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops "'so that your master's grandson may be provided for. "'And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, "'will always eat at my table.' "'Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. "'Then Ziba said to the king, "'Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands "'his servant to do.' "'So Mephibosheth ate at David's table.' like one of the king's sons." Every time we open up God's Word, He desires to give us understanding by the work of His Spirit. May that be true for each one of us here this morning. Saul had been Israel's first king. He had what I would call a manic-depressive relationship with David, David the warrior, David the musician, David, the king's own son-in-law. One of Saul's sons, Jonathan, was David's best friend. The two of them expressed deep love and intense loyalty to each other. Their relationship unfolds starting in 1 Samuel, in chapter 18, if you want this week to take a little bit longer look at their lives. They make arrangements with each other as if they were the closest of brothers. The final glimpse into these relationships, these contracts, these commitments, is in chapter 20, verse 42, where Jonathan says to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. That is the commitment David has in mind in our text when, many years later, he is moved to ask if anyone in Saul's household is still alive. Saul and Jonathan are both dead, and David wants to fulfill his commitment to Jonathan, made back in those agreements years before. This commitment was entered into at that time, and it is surely out of a deep compassion that he steps forward to fulfill it now, if at all possible. The story tells us that a man named Ziba is known to have been King Saul's servant, and when questioned, he says there is one son of Jonathan yet alive. Now, it's interesting to note that Ziba apparently isn't sure about David's motivation in asking. I think he's aware that this might be a trick and that the king actually intends by trickery to bring forward any last survivor of Saul's family in order to kill them So that he removes any threat, because that's the kind of thing that kings did in those days. And then in verse 3, Ziba says there is a descendant, but he makes absolutely clear that this descendant is crippled, so um, inherently is the notation, so King David, you really don't need to be too concerned about him in terms of the safety of your throne. Then when Mephibosheth is brought to David, what are the king's first words to him in verse 7? Don't be afraid. I think he knew Mephibosheth expected to be imprisoned or killed. But then, here it is. Out of obscurity, Mephibosheth is amazingly, wondrously treated as if he were a member of the king's own household, his own family. He is gifted with the full compassion of the king who fulfills his commitment to Mephibosheth's father reaches out to him in loving compassion and treats him as one of his own family for the rest of his life. David made a commitment to Jonathan. He moved to fulfill it, and then he takes action. David is a deeply compassionate man in this instance. It is a remarkable moment. So, what about us? Does compassion rule in our lives. It's a good day for us to face this question squarely. Now, Maybe we already know that we fall far short on the compassion meter. Listen again to a quote from Dallas Willard. The ruined soul must be willing to hear of and recognize its own ruin before it can find how to enter a different path. Are you a model of compassion, in your, or is your life more like rubble related to how you respond to those in need around you? Now, when we look at the topic of compassion in all of Scripture, there are three words that are used for the word compassion. We need to look at each of them because they're true in the Old Testament, and they have their equal uh, comparative word in the New Testament. Because of the distinction between all three of these, it's important for us to look at these so we will know how we're doing with compassion and what God asks of us. One of those words is rooted in commitment. You've already heard me use this word several times related to David. It's commitment in specific formalized terms. Expectations are clear for what each party to the agreement is going to be and to do in relation to the others. There is an obligation to be fulfilled. David made that kind of commitment over and over again with Jonathan. At the General Assembly a week ago, there at that time, tied to my fellow Presbyterian elders, both pastors and lay people, teaching and ruling elders, we were tied together by our common ordination vows. And so, I was obligated to deal with each of my brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that would please God to the best of my ability. Compassion is part of that obligation. It means I am majestically compelled to make good on those ordination vows, on my commitments to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Those commitments are not to be taken lightly. It is imperative and was imperative for me during my week at GA that I remember those obligations and have compassion on those who wanted to set a different course from what I believe honors God best. It is imperative that they do the same for me because we have made vows to do just that. Within the body of Christ, we also make those kinds of commitments by the words we say when we join a church or the words we affirm to each other. So how we live out those commitments with each other in compassion is crucial. Another word for compassion is related to feeling. When we see someone in need, our emotions have the opportunity to be stirred up. The locus of those feelings in Hebrew terminology was the gut, the bowels. In our day and time, we would see that as coming from the heart. But the sense of compassion emanates from deep down inside. David's feelings are not specifically described toward Mephibosheth, but the word used there for kindness in 2 Samuel 9 is the word that speaks about this feeling-oriented response from the, from the heart. At the General Assembly, I'd listened to fellow Presbyterians in committee meeting and in plenary debate. I heard people share their perspectives on marriage and sexuality and all kinds of other issues. I felt deep compassion for people who hurt. I felt deep compassion for those who know that there are needs of people around us in our society and within our churches, people who are often mistreated, issues that we are mistaken on, and who seem to be at a loss regarding what the Bible teaches about holy living. Compassion is the heart's response to anyone in need. So, compassion is commitment, compassion is feeling, and the third, compassion as action. David brought Mephibosheth into his family. During my time in Pittsburgh, I visited some new churches, some just a year or two old. Motivated by commitment to Christ, feeling the needs of the people around them in their neighborhoods, these Presbyterians have gone to the streets to be among the homeless, to provide people food, to provide medical care, and to give the good news about Jesus in those neighborhoods. They planted gardens in a three-by-six-block area of urban Pittsburgh. They also have offered conversations about life and faith and issues that every person is struggling with, with every person that they meet. On one walk with some of those people, several of us uh, were walking along with them in the city streets in a near north side urban area. And we noticed a lot of people milling about at midday. Um, We also then turned on a sidewalk and as we did, there was a low block wall with a few people scattered on it, some together, some not in the heat of that Pittsburgh afternoon. As we passed by in our little group led by one of the leaders of these churches, we heard a woman's voice just after we passed, and the voice uh, said, would you all pray for me? And The rest of us who were visitors kept on walking because we were already thinking, okay, uh, this woman could be on drugs, she could be strung out in other ways, she could be emotionally unstable. We're the visitors in this neighborhood. We're not sure what we should do. And then before all of that thought could work its way through, uh, we also heard her voice again. And she said, aren't you all going to stop and pray for me? And I stopped, and the rest of the group, we turned around. And the leader within that ministry turned and he spoke to her. He invited her to come in and to step into our circle. We all grabbed hands with her and prayed for her in those moments. It was a beautiful momentary action that meant the world to that woman because by our action, we showed the compassion of Christ. Compassion as action. It is commitment, feeling, and action. It isn't just a job for Christians who are in Pittsburgh at General Assembly. It's not even just my job. It's for all of us. Paul writes to the Ephesians, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Peter writes in his first letter, "'Love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing.'" Where we have failed to be compassionate toward fellow Jesus followers, we should ask for forgiveness. Let's take a moment right now to ask God to show us where we have failed to exhibit compassion by commitment, feeling, and action to those who are also followers of Jesus. Listen for God and speak to Him silently. Continuing in a spirit of prayer, friends, remember that people who need compassion are not just people on the streets, they are also people that we live with, husbands, wives, children, parents, people in our neighborhoods, people in extended family, people in our ministry here, people far beyond. God, we know we mess up in showing compassion. We've done that with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Forgive us. Forgive us. Amen. We've looked at the life of David and at the teaching of Paul and Peter. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn to one more place in Scripture with me, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to start reading at verse 35, because here we need to look at what Jesus taught his disciples about compassion in order to really press out this whole topic from Scripture. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. By this time, Jesus, according to Matthew's telling of the story, has announced the reality of the kingdom of God. He's called the people to yield themselves to God. He's delivered his counterculture message of what it means to live this kingdom out. He's done that to thousands of people. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. He stood under the attack of religious leaders of his day. It's been quite a ride to this point at the end of Matthew 9. And then Matthew summarizes all of that in verse 35 when he writes, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. So there it is in summary form, everything that Matthew's told us in his gospel so so far. But what is the motivation for Jesus in doing these things? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Harassed and helpless. Each depressed, oppressed, suppressed person in the crowd, people who are hapless and much confused and barely making it, is in the need of the compassionate touch of Jesus, the same Jesus who has touched us with that compassion. How does He, looking at harassed and helpless people, H2 people, how does He live in relationship with them? And how does He touch so many people, even in our world today? Well, in Matthew's gospel, in that context, Jesus says next in verse 37 that the disciples, the twelve, are to pray for workers to go out and be compassionate as they teach and heal and love. So, that's part of the solution. Pray for people to be compassionate. And then, in the next few verses, he sends them out to do this work. Among the H2 kinds of people, every kind of person in the world, harassed and helpless, they are now to be the instruments of compassion. They are to be the instruments of compassion. And we can do no less. As compassionate as I think I am at times, and I am at times, I also recognize I fail to live a life of compassion as Jesus did. What about you? In late May and early June, Laura and I took to the highways and byways of England and Scotland for a couple of weeks. We were there to attend a wedding, but we wisely decided to make a vacation of it. We saw some amazing buildings from the just-finished Shard, the tallest building now in Europe, to little village pubs, from St. Paul's Cathedral to isolated little village churches, from grand Victorian hotels to quaint B&Bs, bee from private homes like Chatsworth to quaint cottages. Now, like buildings anywhere, each of these must all be maintained in order to fulfill their purpose. Now, we also came across once well-cared-for buildings that lie in a state of ruin through neglect, structures that have been ruined for a long, long time. Friends, our walk in the way of Jesus needs to be diligently maintained. Remember the words from Dallas Willard I quoted earlier, the ruined soul must be willing to hear of and recognize its own ruin before it can find how to enter a different path. And when it comes to compassion, it is possible we have been quite neglectful. Where we fail in compassion, we are weakened. Our faithfulness is weakened. Our witness is weakened. We will continue toward ruin unless we apply ourselves to compassion once again with God's help. Today we've learned that compassion comes out of our commitment to live in the way of Jesus. A commitment. It comes when we feel for the needs of others, and it comes when we act. To whom does Jesus want you to show compassion? Let's take these final moments to listen for the prompting of the Spirit of God about who needs to receive compassion from us. Let's pray. God, show us where we have not been compassionate. Forgive us. Forgive us. God, give us hearts stirred by the needs of others. Remind us in these moments of silence of those to whom we need to show compassion and help us to begin to understand the first step in each of those situations. Speak to us as we listen. God, like David, like the disciples, like Jesus, we need to be compassionate. Take us from this room ready to live that life for the benefit of all people around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for our benediction.